This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the origins of the 1960s Vietnam anti-war movement. It was taught in 2010 by Temple University professor David Farber. So we've been talking these last few weeks out loud about a few core issues that have in many ways given thematic intensity to the 1960s era. We've been trying to think about the meaning and reality of equality in the United States in the 60s era. We've been pondering what democratic practice could and should look like in the United States. And then very much so and very pertinent to what we're going to do today, what role the United States should play internationally? What role should the United States play in a world that was fast changing in the 1960s? So we've gotten to the point in this class where we've reached a point where President Johnson has decided by early 1965 to begin a forthright military intervention by the United States in Vietnam. And the reasons have been fairly compellingly laid out by Johnson between 1964 and 65. With the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964, the president made his case that there was aggression coming from North Vietnam, pointed at the South, and pointed at the United States as well in the attack on U.S. ships in international waters on that Gulf of Tonkin. And remember, it's really important to understand when this resolution was brought before Congress, every single member of the House of Representatives, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, from the South or from the North, all of them voted to approve this resolution in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, only two senators voted against the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, and they had very different reasons. One was a liberal Republican. That's, that's kind of an oxymoron in 2010 language, but there were such things in the 1960s. A fellow named Senator Morse from Oregon, he smelled a rat. He had a source in the Pentagon that said something was amiss about what Johnson was telling the American people about that incident in the Gulf of Tonkin. The other guy was a, a curmudgeon senator from Alaska, the new state of Alaska. It had only just become a, a United States state. And this guy, Senator Gruning, was a kind of hard-nosed realist. And he was doing a kind of cost-benefit analysis. And his critique was, I don't get it. Why does it make sense for the United States to spend blood and treasure going to Vietnam? There was no big moral critique. There was no larger issue about the meaning of Americanness. It didn't add up for him. But again, these are two senators. There's almost no visible critique as Johnson launches what will quickly become an American war in Vietnam. There were a few other voices, a few public voices that raised questions, mostly from that realist perspective. Does this add up? Hans Morgenthau, a guy who had been an advisor to the State Department, a big name in the United States, at least academic community, he raised those issues. Walter Lippmann, a famous columnist, been making uh, pronouncements about American policy for by this time some 50 years. He raised some questions. He also critiqued this as a, a really just not a reasonable solution to America's interests in Asia. 
But otherwise, remember, there's, there's a kind of consensus. It's an election year in 64, Johnson and Goldwater, the Republican and the Democrat running for president, are both advocating the maintenance of America's position in Vietnam. I mean, I emphasize this to give you a sense for the fact that overwhelmingly what Americans heard in their public lives, what their politicians were telling them, what their politicians believed was that the war in Vietnam was justifiable and necessary. Now, Johnson hammers this home in February 1965 after that play coup incident, that incident in which for the first time American Marines were targeted and eight of them were killed in their role protecting an American airbase in Vietnam. He goes on national television to really make the case not just for a resolution to allow the United States to move forward, but to tell the American people because of the aggression by the North, North Vietnam, because the defense of South Vietnam is necessary, we're going to have to start escalating our commitment militarily to the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam. And he gives a, a kind of litany of what to Americans seemed compelling reasons. One, he said, we promised them we'd do that. We pledged in 1954 that we'd stand by South Vietnam. This is a commitment we have as a nation to another nation state. We have to do this. And then in echoes of something Dwight D. Eisenhower, the president in the 1950s, had said about Vietnam, he warned, if we let Vietnam fall, all of Asia could fall to communism. Eisenhower had called this the domino effect. Johnson, the Democrat, seconded and agreed with the premise that his Republican president counterpart in the 50s had said, all of Asia could fall if the United States doesn't honor its commitment to South Vietnam. And he also talked about the potential bloodbath that could occur if North Vietnam was allowed to take over South Vietnam, that hundreds of thousands of innocents would lose their lives. So he made a moral case as well. So political, geopolitical, moral, these were grounds upon which he placed the American involvement in Vietnam. And again, Americans overwhelmingly supported this commitment, both in Congress and in the public. So you begin, in a sense, with a kind of public consensus about the war in Vietnam as being necessary and even more good, an honorable, appropriate, and necessary commitment to the people of South Vietnam. This is the beginning. And by 1965, early 1965, the war begins to escalate from an American involvement perspective. So American troops begin to be sent over. Draft calls, remember there's a draft at this time. Young men are eligible to be drafted into the military and the numbers of young men being drafted begins to increase by 1965. And quite pointedly, Lyndon Johnson unleashes an air war on now the enemy, an American air war, on North Vietnam. And Operation Rolling Thunder, as it's called, begins, in which massive amounts of bombs from U.S. airplanes flown by U.S. pilots begin to be unleashed on North Vietnam. Now, these are targeted bombs. They're not wholesale destructions of cities. They're aimed at troop movements. They're aimed at munition supplies, at factories that are building war materiel. They're targeted bombs. They're not uh, terror bombing. They're not like what happened in the end of World War II. But the bombs are intense. 600,000 tons of bombs will be dropped on North Vietnam in this Operation Rolling Thunder. Large-scale support at this point. So is there any critique 
at this point beyond those very few voices that I discussed earlier. Yeah, there are some Americans who, from the get-go, from the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution right through the play coup uh, incident, the, 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 the death of eight Marines, the launching days later by Lyndon Johnson of Operation Rolling Thunder, who do protest, who do raise questions. But most of these voices, most of these individuals and groups are readily dismissed by most Americans. In some cases, they're the people we've been talking about in here these last many weeks. Uh, one of the first and earliest voices raised against the war in Vietnam comes from a radical pacifist who runs uh, a small, almost underground magazine called Liberation. Starts in the 1950s. It's not a 1960s thing. This is a magazine called Liberation run by a guy named Dave Dellinger. Dellinger, a pacifist. He opposes all wars. During World War II, he was a young man. He recently graduated from Yale. During World War II, he was called up to be drafted, as so many young men were at this time. And Dellinger refused to serve in World War II. He'd gone to jail. He'd served time. It was a nonviolent protest against the war. He refused to be complicit. So this is a guy who's against all wars. So Vietnam is just one more in another war he's going to protest. And his magazine is a beach front, so to speak for that pacifist critique. So there's this tiny group of pacifists who speak out. Oh my gosh, America is entering another war. This is morally indefensible. There were others. We talked about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. By 1964 and 65, SNCC, that group that had started out of the sit-in movements of 1960, had become, in part through their experiences in Mississippi, Alabama, and other hardened places of racism in the United States in those days, to become more and more radical. They weren't just looking at instances of bad policy in the United States, but were trying to create a more systemic critique of American government policy. And one of the critiques that they had developed by late 1964, early 65, these SNCC radical activists, was that the United States was complicit with the kind of imperialism that they found so immoral and wrong in places like Africa. So their critique of Vietnam as a theater in which the United States would become involved stemmed from their already fairly richly developed critique of US involvement in what was called then the Third World. So from Africa to Asia was for these SNCC activists not a long leap. And other militant African Americans, not just associated with SNCC, also using this kind of critique, began to speak out early about the war in Vietnam. Now, this is not mainstream groups. Uh, the Reverend King, for example, in 64 and 65, is not speaking out against the war in Vietnam. He had private reservations, but he did not make public those concerns at this time. So these are more, again, radical black activists in the United States. Again, for the overwhelming majority of American people, like the pacifists, this was a group that could be essentially dismissed. Okay, these people are radical. They've got some overarching complaint about U.S. policy, you know, whatever. And like the pacifists, these are not voices that are heard on the nightly news. They're not reported in the New York Times or Time Magazine. Remember, there's a fairly narrow window of mass media at this point, so it's hard to get your voice into those few niches where you can be heard by more than a few hundred or thousand people. So these kind of people are not being loudly heard or really barely heard at all. They're dismissible, pacifists, 
black radical activists worried about imperialism. And then a third group that speaks out at this time is that kind of nascent new left we talked about. Those white radicals that are in 1964 and 65, relatively few in number, many of them associated with the Students for a Democratic Society, that group that was formed back in 1960 and then had begun to spread throughout other campuses around the United States from its foundation at the University of Michigan. They had a similar critique as their black radical counterparts. There's something about Vietnam that seems wrong. It seems, again, to be some kind of American intervention in a third world country where we're probably not welcome and we're probably not serving the, the need for those people to have democratic self-determination. Remember the SDS activists, the white new left in particular, were really honed in on this idea of democratic self-determination. That people, including the American people, should have the tools and the means to realize their own destiny, to fulfill their own promise and their own policy concerns. So, You've got white and black radicals. You've got an older tradition, people who are generally chronologically older, coming out of a pacifist tradition or uh, a, a tradition of dissent that extends back into the 40s and 50s, who are raising some real questions early days about the war in Vietnam. But again, a very quiet voice in the national conversation, a voice that a large majority of Americans can dismiss as kooks, literally, crazy people, radicals. So, mainstream conversation, New York Times, CBS News, Time Magazine, the President, the Senate Majority Leader, the House Speaker, Republican Democrat, liberal conservative, the establishment, as some young people will start to refer to all these kinds, is pretty much in lockstep with the policy that's developing incrementally but almost inexorably by the United States government in Vietnam as the war escalates. And again, month by month, incrementally more troops are being sent from the United States to Vietnam. More air missions are being launched from bases mostly at this point in Vietnam to attack the North and to try to end, end the insurgency within the South of Vietnam itself. So this is the process. So in some ways it mirrors roughly, or at least, at least maybe it rhymes, with some of the concerns that black activists had had probably earlier days, in the early 50s, let's say, not the early 60s, but the early 50s, when you've got a large majority of the citizenry of the United States in essential agreement about a policy, a way of life, a vision of how America operates. In the case of these black civil rights activists, this was Jim Crow laws, white supremacy, and other uh, means of maintaining a racial hierarchy. So now you've got another group in the 60s, a small group, pacifists, radicals, who are trying as a small minority to convince, convey, inform, the large majority that the policy they take is a given, that the conventional wisdom that they've been bestowed by their political leaders is wrong, flawed, immoral. The nature of the critique is, is, is fluid. But you've got this tiny minority saying, what we're doing in Vietnam is wrong. 
And even though the large majority of Americans think it's fine, we have to somehow wrestle them into rethinking this proposition. Well, so how do you do that? Right? If you're this small minority trying to convince a large majority that your president has misled you, that Congress is wrong, that the mass media is either misinformed or misinforming the public, what do you do? And again, a lot of these people are either people who've been living in many ways outside the mainstream for a long time, or in the case of the white and black radicals I've just described, are, you know, your age. They're 20, they're 25, they're 18. What do you do? Literally, what do you do? What, what repertoire of tactics, tools, methods do you use, again, to try to convince a majority that they're wrong? You know, you can sort of imagine in your head that there's all sorts of ways you might proceed on that. Now, this is happening at a time when there already is a kind of rich movement culture, a rich movement of people who've already embraced tools, techniques, tactics to, to change political life. Right? This is happening simultaneously with the civil rights movement. So 1965, for example, roughly at the time that Lyndon Johnson is telling the American people, we've begun to escalate a military involvement in Vietnam. You've got Martin Luther King and tens and tens of thousands of others marching in Sel Selma, Alabama to ensure the, the right of African Americans to vote in a state that had long disenfranchised them. So, right, so there's this, this kind of parallel social movement occurring as these early, and we can use the word now, anti-war advocates are trying to come up with their own answers and solutions. So obviously, to some extent, this nascent anti-war activism is going to look at the civil rights movement. They have a repertoire. They already have some means and tools and practices that might be adaptable to our cause. So that, that's one piece out there. There's another piece out there that's almost happening simultaneously, but it's, again, a precursor to this. We talked earlier about what was happening on the University of California Berkeley campus in the fall of 1964, really just weeks after the Gulf of Tonkin resolution is passed. And on the campus at the University of California, you remember, you had the free speech movement erupting, Mario Savio getting on top of the police car, telling the students of the University of California, you have a right to political practice on campus. You have a right to speak out freely on campus about the political causes of the day. Now, he was talking about civil rights issues, about racial justice issues. He was not talking about Vietnam. But he was offering, again, a kind of interesting locus, a, a place from which you might launch some kind of political protest. And here it's more pertinent for the white majority. Here's a white radical activist on a university campus of suitable age saying, we can use this place. We should be allowed to use this place, a university campus, as a place to mobilize, organize, and perhaps launch protests against a policy we don't think is right. So right there's this, there's already this sort of available language and this available set of understandings and practices out there as these 
nascent anti-war activists are trying to think, what do we do? Well, following that model, it's intriguing to see what happens. And Johnson's speech in 65, March 65, is like a, a match that lights, well, it's not a bonfire at this point, it's like a, a little tiny fire that begins to erupt around places in which there already is an established political arena and critique in the United States. So one of the first places in which a kind of anti-war mobilization effort begins is on a university campus. At the University of Michigan, again remember the place where the Students for a Democratic Society had been first founded just a few years earlier, there's a movement among faculty, not undergraduates, not graduate students, but basically junior faculty. These are men, almost all men, it might have been all men, I can't quite remember, in their late 20s and early 30s, who for various reasons are suspicious of literally what Johnson has just told them in this speech, this nationally televised speech about why after play coup we're going to have to start escalating our involvement in Vietnam. And about 20 of these young professors, untenured, they have no job security, uh, gather together in a room not unlike this, and they say, what should we do? I, I think we have to do something on campus to bring to the attention of young people that something's amiss in Vietnam. They literally sit around like this and try to brainstorm. What can we do? And they kind of, they do almost like a tick list. You know, what, what are the tools we could use? What are the possibilities? And they come up with a pretty simple solution. They say, you know what we should do? We should not have classes on a date certain. We'll pick a day. And instead of teaching our normal classes, we'll have a, a kind of moratorium on everyday business. And they use the word moratorium. And uh, we'll talk about the war in Vietnam. We'll try to find some informed opinion. We'll try to find somebody who knows something about this. Really, none of the guys in the room knew anything about Vietnam other than what they'd been reading at the time in New York Times and CBS and listening to Congress. So they had no particular expertise. They just had suspicion. And so that's what they figure. And now this is all done publicly. They announce what they're doing. And you'd be not surprised to understand that many powerful citizens in Michigan, as they get wind that these professors are going to not do their job for which they're paid that day, not teach their classes, deny the students the opportunity to proceed, they get a lot of pushback from this. And basically they're told, you do this, you could be fired. This is inappropriate. And it's not right to basically force your students not to be able to attend the class that they you know, paid their monies for. So the professors, again, untenured, no real job security, they kind of sit back and they try to think this through. And they come up with an alternative plan. They compromise. They say, okay, 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 we won't strike, we won't, we won't have a moratorium, we'll teach our classes that day, fine, fine, fine. But after classes, at 8 p.m., can we have a room, a big room, an auditorium? University of Michigan has some mammoth auditoriums. And let us use the PA system and the blackboards and the room. We won't disrupt anything, there's nothing scheduled. And let us have a teach-in. Sit-ins from 1960, right? They kind of coin a phrase. We'll have a teach-in. And we'll bring in some people, hopefully smart guys who know something about Vietnam, and we'll debate the great issues of the day. 
And intriguingly, the University of Michigan, think about the University of California, Berkeley, just a few months earlier, who are fighting tooth and nail to prevent Savio et al. to have open access politically to the campus. The University of Michigan, every campus is different, says, all right, as long as you guys don't strike, you can do this. So a tactic is born, right, through this kind of uh, negotiating and thinking through. A tactic is born. We'll have a teaching. These are early days. How do you convince a majority of people who are either supportive of the president's policy or, in all likelihood, no offense to you 18 to 25-year-olds, apathetic about the policies that are ensuing? How do you get them excited, interested, and impassioned? And, at a minimum, informed. You teach them. Take a university, you extend it into the political realm. So that's what happens. 8 o'clock it starts, and they're blown away. Again, I don't know if you've ever done this, you know, had a party, right? You have a party at your house, 8.30, there's nobody here, 9 o'clock. Well, there's seven people here. I guess that'd be fine. Seven people's cool. We'll be all right. You know, but meanwhile, you're praying that the 100 people you invited show up. They have no idea how many people will show up to this teaching. 3,000 people come, right? The auditorium doesn't, you know, nearly hold that many people. It's astonishing. You're on a university campus, early 19th, is March 1965, there's 3,000 kids who want to hear about this. They want to talk about this. They don't just want, they don't want this, you know, talking head up above telling them. They want some back and forth. They want to, they want to be part of this. That's that kind of SDS, participatory democracy spirit. They got it. 3,000 people show up. They talk all night. And not all of them stay all night, mind you, but they go all the way to 8 o'clock the next morning, 12 hours. And then they kind of, you know, oh, wait. Classes start in three minutes. We have to leave now. You know, so no breaking of laws. This is all okay. 35 other campuses just like within a week do the same thing. Now, an intriguing issue. You have a teaching. What do you teach? And you know, where do you get information? There's no internet. There's no like, oh, Vietnam, let's get a few perspectives. You know, let's see what's happening. How, how do you do that? Well, they're like scrambling trying to find these, these guys who started this teaching. They don't know. They just got, you know, suspicious. Who do they get? So they, they, they know a guy who's an economics professor out east who used to serve as an economic advisor in Vietnam. Remember that nation-building phase? They're bringing all these experts, smart guys, to try to help build an economy in Vietnam and ports and infrastructure. He's one of these guys. You know, he had a contract. He had a grant to do this work in Vietnam. So he comes, and he's informative. He's spent three years on the ground in Vietnam, and he says, it's not working. I mean, we went there with good intentions. They don't want us there. They want to do it their way. They don't want to do it our way. What the president tells you is not accurate. We are not welcome there. We are not seen as their great allies. We're seen as one more big power intervening in their affairs. Next guy who comes up, again, it's funny to think about this. He's an anthropologist. He had done his field work in Vietnam. You know, it was a primitive place. That's how they saw it, right? That you would go and do field work as an anthropologist. And he'd worked with hill people up in the hills. I, I can't remember if he worked with the Hmong or some other group. But, you know, an anthropologist, and he'd been there a long time. And he comes back and he says, well, the Vietnamese see the world very differently than us. It is this cultural critique. And, but they see us as sort of like China or like the other great powers that for centuries have come and gone over their soil. And they just want, same thing. He says, they don't see us as the freedom-loving, democratic people of the United States there to just lend a hand. President Johnson said we were going there for no other reason than to help. And this anthropologist says, hey, I hate to tell you, they don't want your help. 
So okay, you know, interesting perspectives, not traditional perspectives. It's not a four-star general. It's not a U.S. senator. These are like alternative voices. The third guy is this kind of radical intellectual. Young guy, he's in his 30s. He's, you know, trying to piece together a living by writing and talking. And a guy named Arthur Waskow, he comes in there and he kind of gives the barn burner. He seconds that kind of radical critique that groups like SNCC and SDS have been making. He's older. He's supposedly well-read. And he says, yes, this is another war of imperialism. He uses the I word, right? The U.S. is a new imperialist. In this region. So you, know, you can imagine the students, huh, okay, something to grapple with. And that was it. That was like two hours, and then they had 10 more hours then of hanging out, talking. They broke into small groups, classrooms like this. Okay, and these things spread. That's what I guess I'm trying to say. Who you could bring in varied. Did you have an expert? Did you have somebody who knew something about Vietnam? I mean, again, often no. There were no courses in any university in the United States on the history of Vietnam. There was no university in the United States that taught the Vietnamese language. So you didn't have a lot of in-house experts in the United States on these issues. Uh, alas, we didn't have many in-house experts in the State Department or the CIA either on Vietnam, but that's, that's another can of worms. So it was hard to get information. Okay, another turn of this same story. Hard to get information, right? You got young people, you got all kinds of people saying that. Like, I don't trust Time Magazine, I don't trust the New York Times, I don't trust the President of the United States, but you know, I can't go to a teaching every day. What do I do? So, a 26-year-old graduate student in New York, an English literature major, she's writing her doctorate on English literature, but she's sort of part of this new left. She's been involved in protests in the early 60s. She tries to take advantage of her skill set. I can write, <laughs> I can do research, I know how to do these things. I'll set up an alternative media on this issue. And really, in incredibly rapid time, with almost no money in her pocket at all, she gets a little grant from a teacher's union in New York. I remember the United Auto Workers helped fund some of the early SNCC activities. So here's another little group, these teachers union, you can grab a little money out of, and I'm talking at this point hundreds of dollars but enough to you know, get a mimeograph machine and a few other things. And she starts, I don't know, magazines is too grandiose a term for it, something called Viet Report, an alternative magazine focused on Vietnam. And, well, okay, that's sweet. How do you fill the pages? I mean, again, think really practically. Okay, I got this cool idea. What goes in there? Well, she had an intriguing idea. She didn't really trust that American writers, journalists, even academics, how dare she, knew enough to really substantiate a monthly journal on Vietnam that told what she saw as the true story. So she, luckily, spoke some French. She had some connections in England through like a graduate student network. And she began to use the European press, which remember had a far wider ideological range than the American press, I mean, all the way from communists to monarchists. And she began, like many of you would do today using the internet, she began to fish for sources that she saw as giving an alternative to the kind of things Johnson and Congress and the regular media in the United States are reporting. So she was using foreign language, she'd translate them or get someone to translate them, and she'd use that to piece together this alternative media. 
again, cool, like, what are the tools of contention? How do you, how do you create a counter public to the established one? So this was step two. She wasn't alone in this in Berkeley. You'll be shocked to hear in Berkeley. There was another character, guy who ran a bar, Steppenwolf Bar, taken from the song Steppenwolf, in which he decides that there's a need. He's sitting around the bar, a lot of drunken nights, people spewing forth this and that about politics in the United States. He's like, you know what we need around here? We need our own newspaper. You know, there's the San Francisco Examiner, there's the Oakland Tribune, there's the regular newspapers. He's like, we need our own newspaper for people like us who don't buy what they're telling us. And he starts out of his pocket, he's a bar owner, he's got some cash, a newspaper called the Berkeley Barb, 1965. In some ways, this is like the first underground newspaper. There'll be lots of these underground newspapers that sprout up in every city in the United States, the 60s, here in Philadelphia, the free press, there's, there's lots of them all over the country. But this one sort of starts it off in 65. And he focuses on Vietnam. And he talks to those people who had long been seen as marginal. He talks to pacifists. He talks to SNCC activists. He talks to SDS and other new left radicals. And he uses them as his sources. Right? I mean, if you're a journalist normally, who do you talk to? You know, you call up the congressman, you call the mayor, you talk to their spokespersons. He doesn't use those as his sources. He uses this, this small-scale, grassroots, but fairly quickly growing alternative set of experts. And he fills up his newspaper with stuff. Now, the Berkeley Barb's a pretty crazy newspaper. We have it here at Temple. It's funny to look at. It's filled with all sorts of uh, transgressive material. That's a nice way to put it. It's the first newspaper, I think in California, I think there's already one in New York, that will, for example, print sex ads. So this guy Shear, guy who runs it, Robert Shear, the bar owner turned newspaper publisher, Right, he's kind of a wild and crazy guy, kind of a bohemian character. So it combines cultural radicalism with political radicalism. Kind of an interesting new blend. Okay, teach-ins, university-based, get the young people invested. This might have relevance to them, especially the young men who could be drafted and go to war. Try to create an alternative mass media. You can't trust the establishment media. DIY, do it yourself. Make your own stuff. And again, this starts to spread. These are tools of contention. How do you try to convince more and more people that something's afoot that they should not accept? So that's the beginning. Now, there's all these other traditional tools available too. SDS, Students for Democratic Society, many of the leaders, many of the chapters around the country, already suspicious, already raising questions about Vietnam. But this is not their main issue. You remember we talked before that SDS at this point was involved with that attempt to go into neighborhoods of poor people, white and black, and organize them and try to create some kind of economic justice movement in the United States. That's, that was sort of the focus of SDS at this point. Nonetheless, they're watching what's going on, University of Michigan and Berkeley and other places, and they say, we've we got to do something about this Vietnam thing. I know it's not our main concern. We're, we're really focused on issues of racial justice, economic justice, but... Let's do something. So what do you do if you want to kind of do something on the cheap that doesn't take a lot of time or effort, that's not this massive commitment of trying to set up sources in Europe and pulling in all? Hey, let's have a rally. Let's have a march. Right? This is something that's been happening by 1965 thousands of times. Now, mainly having to do 
with race issues in the United States. But it's, it's easily accessible. And if you say to somebody, hey, we're going to have a, a march and a rally. You want to join? By 1965, everyone goes like, oh, yeah, like what the black people do all the time. Right. right? It's an available tool. Everybody kind of knows about it. So they figure, what the hell, won't be a big deal, let's go for it. And they announce with very few time, a few weeks lead time, we're going to have a march and rally in Washington, D.C., April 1965, to protest Lyndon Johnson's escalation of the war in Vietnam. And once again, it's like that party. They plan for a few hundred people to show up. I mean, again, they don't have, like, national advertising for this. They have no budget at all to market or announce this. And again, there's no Twitter, there's no social networks, there's no easy way to get people's attention. All they have are chapters around the country, and they put out the word to their chapters and say, tell like, other people that they should like come to this. It'll be interesting. Well, once again, there's a kind of shocking moment when these few characters from SDS are kind of up in front of the crowd in Washington, D.C., and people just keep coming. You know, they, they didn't really know what appear. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, almost 20,000 people show up in Washington, D.C. for what is the first anti-war march and rally. You know, the third tool that these guys are trying to create and develop. These are early days, April 65. There aren't that many troops yet in Vietnam, though the bombing has begun. American troops in Vietnam. And the head of the organization, and, and uh, I don't believe there's any video of this, because again, it's like, right, this is not the big time. A guy named Paul Potter, he's, uh, you know, maybe not the greatest public speaker in the world, but he's the president of the organization, so he gets to give the big speech. And he gets up there, and he kind of gives a very carefully rational, dispassionate, there's no waving of arms or anything like that speech, and he, he tries to wrap his head around what the United States is doing in Vietnam. And he's sort of speaking almost in counterpoint to Johnson's speech that had taken place the month before. And, and he's sort of publicly struggling. He'd written the speech down, so a little bit it's feigned. But he's publicly struggling with why this is happening. Why is the United States going to start a land and air war in this little country 8,000 miles away? in Asia. And, and he kind of comes to this conclusion that he says there's, there's some kind of system in the United States. That's the phrase he uses over and over. There is a system in the United States that creates these wars, that creates these interventions. And he says, essentially, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to call it. I don't know how to identify it. But I know it's there. And we, talking to the 20,000, again, there's no TV coverage, it's, it's just them, we have to learn how to identify that system. Get a kind of open-ended phrase. A system that will create wars in Asia for some kind of American interest that's, that's you know, hard to pin down. A radical critique, but a kind of vague critique. It's an interesting moment. And in, in, in creating the open-ended question, again, it's kind of an interesting rhetorical move. Instead of telling people, here's what you should think, He's saying, like Mario Savio did just a few months earlier at Berkeley, what should we do about this? What do you think is happening? So again, it's kind of an interesting organizing tool. You don't preach, you question.
kind of a, a rhetorical style that you'll see in a lot of this anti-war organizing, at least in these early days. So he spreads the word, we have to do something. Now, there's another interesting touch to this speech, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't leave it alone, because it's kind of a hallmark speech. It's one of the first big anti-war speeches made in the United States. He, he does this critique. There's a system. We have to identify this system. What is it that makes these wars happen? What's the unveiling pressure? And then he continues, and he says, as I see it, what the people in Vietnam want is really just like what we want here in the United States. Now, he's making quite a leap. Again, he's a 20-something-year-old guy. He doesn't speak Vietnamese. He doesn't really know much about what's happening actually in Vietnam. He's been reading the first issue of Viet Report. I mean, he's got a little fax on his fingertips. But I'm in, he says, but these people, I feel, are just like us. And they're fighting for some of the same things we're fighting for. They're fighting to be able to determine their own lives, to have democratic autonomy, to liberate themselves from forms of oppression. This is kind of, you know, in psychological terms, kind of projection. You know, these are certainly the things he's feeling and that many of his colleagues are feeling. And he attributes the same struggle in Vietnam as the struggle in the United States for a kind of democratic self-determination. There's truth to it. But he goes further and he sort of says, what we're fighting here in the United States is the same as what they're fighting in Vietnam. We're alike and we share much of the same vision of how the world works. And we're fighting something that's dark and oppressive. Uh, this is what one of the members of the anti-war movement will later call a kind of Manichaean worldview, which is there's sort of there's good and there's evil. And you, again, remember that existential notion, you have to choose which side you're on. Okay, th this is a little risky as a proposition. I mean, there don't have to be two sides to every struggle with one good and one bad. There could be two good, two bad, 50 fragments, right? It doesn't have to be. But the Cold War kind of made you think that way. There's the Soviets and the Americans. We tend to do that, I guess, because we have two arms. Maybe we like, you know, the third case. So he sort of posits this idea that the National Liberation Front, Ho Chi Minh, are similar to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, to the Students for a Democratic Society. It's, a, it's, it's an intriguing development and a potentially risky one for the movement itself. Early days. Nobody's sure what's happening. It's unclear. Well, between 1965 and 1966, by the end of 1966, the war in Vietnam has begun to escalate rapidly. And it escalates rapidly because each time President Johnson tries to essentially band-aid the deterioration of the American ally, the South Vietnamese, the band-aid fails. The military, with the tools Johnson gives them, can't manage the deterioration of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam and the government of the Republic of Vietnam, our ally. This the, the forces that we oppose, the National Liberation Front, the North Vietnamese government, are gaining and getting stronger. So Johnson is forced to keep putting in more troops, escalating America's land war in Asia. He's, he's bargaining. He's trying to negotiate with Ho Chi Minh. He's trying to work out a deal, as he's so good at doing with the United States Congress. He's offering this. He's offering that. But the American enemy won't move. They won't negotiate. They won't do a deal. They won't compromise. So Johnson keeps trying to incrementally increase the pressure. 
Now this pressure causes, this incremental pressure causes a couple things to happen. One, the war is starting to cost more and more money. We're all familiar with that phenomenon. And it's causing more and more young men. Remember the draft only calls up young men. Women are not uh, eligible for the draft to be called up into service. So more and more young people are getting their attentions focused willy-nilly on the war in Vietnam. Now, quick aside, remember, the way the draft works is really, I don't know how else to put it, messy. <laughs> there are 26 million baby boomers who come of age during the war in Vietnam. You don't do that in half, so that's a little over 13 million. You don't, wait, that's 26 million men. Sorry about that. That's 26 million men who come of age, turn 18. You just don't need that many people in the Army, right? You know, they'd have to stand like this or something in Vietnam. So you've got to have a system, a selective service system, it's called. That's the real name, to pick which ones go. So rather than send all 26 million young men there, you pick which ones will go. To do that, you have to make some people not have to go. Now, some people don't have to go because they're incredibly stupid, right? If you're too stupid, you can't serve in the military. Some people are physically unable to go into the military, so they don't have to go. But then, once you've ruled that out, you still got a whole lot of people. So who do you pick to go? Well, there are deferments, methods that are used to keep you from having to go, at least right away. So, for example, an interesting one people don't tend to think about, if you were a skilled tradesman, even an apprentice training to be a carpenter, an electrician, or a plumber, that was seen as a worthy skill that was more important to the United States economy than sending you as a combat soldier into Vietnam. So you could be deferred because of the job you held. In this case, a skilled tradesman. You didn't have to defer. You could volunteer. You could serve. But you would be deferred. More famously, if you were a college student or a graduate student, you would be deferred from having to serve. Now, college student is a specific amount of time. You can't stay, I mean, this will be a shock to some of you, but you, you're not supposed to stay in school forever. You're, you're supposed to get out after a while. So eventually you would become eligible for the draft. But while you were a student, you were deferred. You, you didn't have to serve. One more weird thing about how the draft worked during this time, not only could you be deferred for various vocational or positions you have in American society, you could sort of negotiate with the people who were picking the draftees. It didn't happen in Washington, D.C. There wasn't a giant IBM computer that spit out the names of who would be drafted. The way it worked instead was you did receive a notice that you were eligible to be drafted, you as a young man of a certain age, and you would have to go to your local draft board. I mean, literally your local guys. You know, in North Philly, there'd be a draft board. In Doylestown, there'd be a draft board. There'd be places you would literally go, and there'd be some guys, usually old white guys, sitting at a table, most of whom had served in, in World War II, who were the draft board. Literally, again, it's a, we tend to think it's abstract. It was some guys. And then you would pitch your story. I mean, if you wanted to go, you didn't have to pitch a story. You just filled out the paperwork. You moved on. But if you said, I have a reason I shouldn't serve, you'd present it. I have a note from my doctor, I have a really bad cold. You know, I can't take the test, but the equivalent, I can't go to Vietnam. Oh, you know, for years I've had this psychiatric condition. It's just, I'm kind of crazy, sorry, and I have a note to prove it. All kinds of reasons. And the draft board could look at the stuff and go like, yeah, whatever, on the bus. Didn't happen that fast, but you get the point. 
Or they could say, oh, I know you're dead. He's a good guy. You don't have to go. So it was, it was really wide open as to who would end up going to Vietnam. Obviously, if you had more resources, access to psychiatrists, access to good jobs that were necessary, the money to keep staying in school, you had a real advantage if you did not want to serve. Now, in 65, when there weren't that many draft notices being sent, most people, they got called up, they did their thing. If they got drafted, they, they went. But every month, as more and more people are going, as these university protests are heating up, as word is spreading that there are some, at least, who think this war isn't right or good, you know, there's more people interested in saying, and, you know, there's a certain self-interest in this. Is this a war worth dying for? You know, again, your mind is focused if you're an 18-, 20-year-old young man facing that very real decision. Is this war worth dying for? It tends to concentrate the mind. So you've got now a pool of people who are potentially now more motivated to think about an issue than if it was, well, not draft-induced, might not. Still, I, I, I strongly underline overwhelmingly when people were called up to the draft board in 65 and 66, you know, they went through the process. There was no gaming. This, okay. But again, if you're a student, graduate student, you, you don't have to serve. There, there are ways out. Well, not surprisingly, by 1966, as the draft is starting to increase, there are young people focused now on the draft who begin to resist. Another tool, and, and a different tool than the three we've talked about. So here's this kind of process that doesn't really have any corollary in certainly the civil rights movement or in the other protest movement. The draft, how do you, what do you, should you in some ways protest this system? As early as 1966, a few of these radicals who already invest in the process publicly declaim their unwillingness to serve. A little bit like that guy Dave Dellinger during World War II, the pacifist who said, you know, I won't serve in any war. Now, these guys didn't say, I won't serve in any war. They said, this war, based on what I know by 1966 is wrong, I won't serve. And they did this literal, catchy, publicity-garnering move. Uh, every, do you guys, I don't know, you guys don't do this anymore. You, you have to register the draft still, but you don't, you, you used to have to carry a card, literally a draft card saying your status. And as a young man, you were required by law to carry it everywhere you went. So these guys took their card and they burned it. I will not serve. Now this is, this is symbolic, right? It's like they still have a copy of your card somewhere in Washington. It isn't like it magically goes away like, whoa, cool. I'm, it's, it's, it's still, a, but it's a symbol. Interestingly, a, a Congress, after these guys do this, passes a law saying, you, you can't burn your draft card. That's commie rot. You just can't do that. That's just bad. And they literally put a five-year prison sentence on burning your draft card. Interesting, court cases will ensue. And actually, the courts substantiate the law saying, if you burn your draft card, you go to jail. But it's the beginning of a protest. And starting in 66, but escalating by early 67, a draft resistance movement begins. It starts in Boston, is the first one. It's called resistance. And again, kind of quickly spreads. This is a different model. And what it does is it couches people on ways you can keep out of the draft. 
It also asks people to publicly state that they are refusing to serve in Vietnam. So it's supposed to be a political thing, not a private, tricky thing. That was called draft evasion, a little different than draft resistance. But same time, people are being shown how to stay out of the war. A, a different kind of technique, a different tool. So what you've got now are, are people in 66, in early 67, in small ways, symbolic ways, mass-mediated, oriented ways, trying to come up with tools, techniques, maybe an overarching strategy, to somehow get Americans, young and old, to rethink the premises that their president, their Congress, and others have told them is the national duty. Right? So you've got this process. So how do you escalate that? You know, you've got tens of thousands, maybe by this time it's probably fair to say, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans who have become highly suspicious, even opposed to this war policy. But you're right, the nation at this time has got 200 million people. Most people aren't on board with this. How do you up the ante? Well, instead of just having that one march and rally, you start to have all over the country and then organized nationally by a group that forms out of these various, usually radical factions, to host, to hold, to mobilize just gatherings of people, rallies, anti-war rallies, in which people would come and speak and explain why the war in Vietnam is wrong. Again, this is, this is not a, a new invention. Before America's intervention in World War II, before the December 7th, 1941 attack, there were organized groups in the United States, America First was the most famous of them, that held similar rallies to keep America out of the war in Germany. They weren't really focused on Japan. But this is a little different, isn't it? There already is a war. So as people are rallying and protesting, refusing or resisting entry into the draft, you've got to remember other young men are going to Vietnam. At this time, tens, over 10,000 by the end, uh, by early 1967, have died fighting in Vietnam. Many families are sacrificing. So this is a protest going on while there's a war being fought. Little different than World War II in that there was no declaration of war. So freedom of speech, freedom of assembly are still fully warranted constitutionally. When there's a war declared, there's really different rules of engagement between the public and the Bill of Rights. But there's no declared war. But you do have American young men dying. While these people are saying this is wrong. You can imagine the backlash. Right? You've got, again, most Americans thinking the war is right, first of all, but secondly, it's like right or wrong, you know, our, our guys are dying over there. You have to shut up now. You have to just rally around the troops. Right? So you can see that there's room here for more than just intellectual disquisition about policy. This is getting to be more and more visceral stuff. The stakes are ever more high. So by late 1966, into early 67, the nation is beginning to polarize around this issue with a very small minority actively opposing the war, a very large majority saying, you know, we, the troops are over there. You've got to rally around the troops. This heightens the stakes, makes things trickier, complicates the process. There's blood. 
being spilled. Well, the war doesn't just end in 1966. If it did, this wouldn't be a lecture. This would be three sentences of a lecture, right? The war is just going to keep continuing. So by mid-1967, more than two years of war have been fought. And Americans are now in Vietnam, not in small numbers, not in support units, not on guarding air bases, but in order to sustain the South Vietnamese government, they're there in massive numbers, hundreds of thousands of American troops by, by mid-1967 are in Vietnam. What are we doing? What's the end point? You've got all kinds of Americans anxious about this war now. So it's a kind of opening. As the war continues, more and more people focused on it. You still got this problem, though. How do you convince people to care? How do you convince people who aren't directly affected to do something? How do you convince people whose sons are in harm's way that this is ill-advised? What other tools are there? What other techniques are there? Well, in 67, part of this anti-war movement, which now has been activated for, for a long time, two and a half years, they begin to up the ante. In 1967, some of these longtime activists, some of them the older guys, Dave Dellinger, that guy I mentioned earlier, literally at the heart of this movement, and others younger as well, are saying, you know, we're going to have to start combining our, our, our goals here. So we've got this witness program, this Gandhian approach. We're nonviolent, we're peaceful, we assemble, we witness in the sense that we think this war is wrong, and we want people to see that there are at least some Americans who don't want this war to continue in their name. But we need to do more to catch their attention. And some of the younger people involved in this anti-war say, we got, we got to sort of adopt some of the guerrilla techniques that the Vietnamese are using. Now, they don't mean violence, but they mean ways to sort of confront, subvert, get in the way of the war machine so that the Pentagon and the White House and Congress understand that not all Americans are going to allow this, well, what they see now is slaughter, to go on indefinitely. So in Berkeley, again, for example, a small group, not part of the student new left, sort of an independent anti-war group, begin to try to blockade the troop ships that are taking people literally to the depot in Oakland, the port in Oakland, where troop ships go off into the Pacific, into Vietnam. They literally try to stop some of the troop trains that are delivering young recruits on their way to war. You know, they're trying to blockade the war. Others start to protest at draft boards. They, they try to, you know, link arms and not allow people to get into draft boards. They're starting to up the ante. In 1967, a large group, uh, some 75,000, some say over 100,000, show up at the Pentagon in the United States in October. This is by 1967. And on the one hand, it's a typical protest. Well, we don't like the war. It's immoral. It's wrong. You know, rhetoric. But they also literally try to surround the Pentagon. You guys ever seen the Pentagon? It's like really, really big. <laughs> it's really hard to surround. But they have a lot of people there. And they sort of symbolically are trying to stop, you know, the heart, well, the brains, I guess you could say, of the war machine by literally, you know, blocking the Pentagon. Now, there's some characters in this protest who kind of try to change the rules of the game. They say, you know, we've been doing these marches, these rallies, you know, okay, it's cool, we're around the Pentagon, that might get some TV notice, that's kind of clever, but people are kind of bored, to tell you the truth, with marches, rallies, and protests. 
So we, we got to like do something cool to catch people's attention. And this guy who actually thought of the troop blockade thing in Berkeley, he's a guy named Jerry Rubin. He's hooked up with some long-haired guy in New York City named Abby Hoffman, and they come up with a kind of a goof, a scam, where they announce to the press that the purpose of linking their arms and encircling the Pentagon is not just to like block people from getting in and out. It's actually part of a magical rite. And if done properly, they can levitate the Pentagon. Because the Pentagon, everybody knows, is the ancient symbol of evil. And so we have to do counter magic. This is kind of a goof. But the press is like, that's funny. You know, it's like our poor uh, Republican friend down in Delaware who gets a lot of news coverage for saying stuff that's special. Well, same idea. It's like, oh, the press is like, that's cool. You have long hair. You're funny. Can we take a picture of you? Right? It catches people's attention. And suddenly, everybody kind of clicks. It's like, oh, you know, if you want more attention, right? You're trying to reach the majority. You're trying to get publicity. You're trying to get people to hear you. Maybe you got to do kind of clever, goofy stuff that breaks the paradigm. Civil rights movement, right? Think about it. We should, very serious, very sober. Even the people who are angry are like angry, right? It's, these guys are like, well, let's make it funny. Let's make it clever. Dangerous. Right? We're talking about war. We're talking about people dying in Vietnam. But, you know, the American public's kind of fickle. <laughs> so maybe to reach them. So it's another, how do you do contentious politics? How do you get people to listen? How do you get a majority to focus? How do you break them out of their apathy? And these two guys in particular, Hoffman and Rubin, they're trying to get young people to focus. Not just individually maybe try to evade the draft, but to speak out publicly, to change the course of the nation's politics. Guess what I'm trying to say is between 65 and late 67, all sorts of tools are being engineered. All sorts of kind of modelings of how the public works are occurring. Anti-war activists are, are, are stretching the boundaries of democratic practice. You know, how do you do democracy? As they, as they try to figure out how to capture the nation's attention. Now, in 1968, this anti-war movement will split. Half, and half's not fair, some large percent will continue these, well, protest politics. Rally, march, sit-ins, teach-ins, blockades, confront the war makers, uh, protest at universities. But another large segment will say, you know, I think we've convinced a lot of Americans, folks, that the war is wrong. We need to now turn to sort of the, the main highway of democratic politics in the United States, which is electoral. 1968 is an election year. 1964, we had a choice between bomb Vietnam to the Stone Age versus incrementally try to change the policies of Vietnam through an escalating war, right? Republican and Democrat both agreed you had to keep it up. Now in 68, maybe we can get a choice. And some of these anti-war activists begin to try to cajole, convince, persuade, fund an anti-war Democratic Party candidate. They can go mainstream, in other words. Maybe we've got enough support now to go mainstream. Maybe democracy in its most traditional sense will work. So in 1968, candidates are sought who can position themselves as anti-war advocates in the presidential election of the United States of America. 
The first guy who kind of comes to the fore is a junior senator from Minnesota, not, not a major figure in the United States Congress named Eugene McCarthy. But he steps forward. He turns on the sitting president of the United States, the head of his party, Lyndon Johnson, and says, I will run against Johnson. I will stand as an anti-war candidate. And he shocks uh, the punditry and probably most voters in the United States by almost defeating Lyndon Johnson in the first Democratic primary in New Hampshire in early 1968. He doesn't quite win, but he almost wins. And suddenly it's like, huh, even in conservative New Hampshire, people don't like the war in Vietnam. Not protesters, not radicals, not pacifists, not new lefters, not black people. I don't know if there were any black people in New Hampshire in 1968, right? But kind of just regular folks don't like this. Well, into the fray jumps the junior but very well-known senator from New York, Bobby Kennedy, the dead president's brother, who also says, I too will stand against this war in Vietnam. I too will challenge the seated president of the United States. Uh, Johnson is horrified at what he sees as betrayal by his own party's senatorial representatives. And, uh, you know, it's a real moment of truth for him. Johnson is not in the best of health. He's, he's, he's had gallbladder surgery. His heart's not good. He's faced incredible stress from a war that he never wanted to fight but felt it was unavoidable. He decides in the face of this genuine challenge to quit. He doesn't quit the presidency, but he walks away from his campaign to be reelected. So electorally, this movement has had impact but it doesn't have success. To cut to the chase, the man who wins the Democratic nomination is not Kennedy. He's, you all know, assassinated June 1968 by someone not interested in the war in Vietnam, but who had other access to grind. So Kennedy is, is killed. Uh, probably would not have been able to get the nomination. McCarthy never had the kind of gravitas. He wasn't a charismatic political figure to carry it off. And instead, LBJ's vice president, a guy named Hubert Humphrey, a guy who was ambivalent about the war in Vietnam but essentially promised to carry on the policies of Johnson, wins the nomination. Opposing him is a Republican who'd been around the political bush more than a few times named Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon who'd lost to Kennedy in 1960. He'd lost his bid to become governor of California in 1966, but Richard Nixon is not an easy guy to make disappear. He comes back from the political dead. He wins the Republican nomination. And he does something tricky. And I'm not going to be able to say much more today. But he does something very interesting. Now, Nixon had made his bones politically as a fierce anti-communist. As a guy who said always we must stand up to the threat of Soviet communism. But by 1968, the war in Vietnam was wearing thin with, again, not just radicals, not just with young people both more and more Americans. They didn't want to betray their troops. They didn't want to give up on their vision of what the United States stood for. They certainly didn't have a radical critique of American foreign policy. But my gosh, the war had been going on now for more than three and a half years when Election Day came. So Nixon offered something interesting. He didn't say, we will win no matter the cost. We will defeat communism no matter what burden it costs us. He said something different. He says, Americans must win this peace. Americans must win this peace. Okay, what's that mean? 
He goes, well, I promise you that I will win this peace for America. I have a plan to end the war in Vietnam. Everyone's like, oh, phew, thank goodness. How are you going to do that? And he goes, well, it would be unfair of me to tell you while I'm not the President of the United States because that would undercut President Johnson's efforts to negotiate with our enemies. So you'll just have to believe me, because I'm such a believable figure, that I have a plan to end the war in Vietnam. Well, we're going to have to leave it here today. The war does not end with Richard Nixon's victory in 1968. Indeed, the war will go on until 1973, when Richard Nixon took office. About 31,000 American soldiers had already perished, Marines and sailors as well. 27,000 more will die while Richard Nixon is president. Because Nixon does not quickly, easily, or effectively end the war in Vietnam, the anti-war movement in the years ahead will radicalize and explode and create an incredible polarization among the American people. That's for next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.